Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Welcome to Exploring Missions, connecting mission needs with those equipped by God to meet those needs across the world or across town. And now the host of Exploring Missions, Bert Harper. Thank you for listening to Exploring Missions today. This is Nathan Harper. Glad to be with you. And we pray that you'll be blessed as you uh, join in with us and and listen to uh, today's uh, message and I have the privilege of introducing, uh, actually, a uh, this is an audio of a, of a speaker who uh, I, I believe you'll be blessed to hear. He's actually a friend of mine, and I've actually had the privilege for the last uh, year, year and a half, to uh, serve with uh, this ministry, Vapor Ministries, and the uh, founder and director uh, who you'll be hearing today is Micah uh, McElveen, and Micah and his wife, Audrey they serve with Vapor Ministries. Mike is going to be sharing about his story, which is really an incredible story that you don't want to miss, and also about what Vapor Ministries is doing across the world. So thank you for listening today, and uh, may you be blessed as you hear what Micah has to say. On October 9th, 1996, I learned very personally the reality that life at the end of the day is like a vapor like a mist that appears for a moment and vanishes away. I was born playing ball, love sports, grew up in a very athletic family. My father, my dad, he was teacher, preacher, lumberyard, grocery worker, kind of a jack of all trades, but my dad was coach, coached high school football for 18 years. And some of my earliest memories are the smell of the grass on Friday night, you know, the Friday night lights. I was that little kid, the coach's son that was in the locker rooms and in the gyms and in the weight rooms and and by his dad's side. And over the course of time, this love for a game, love for ball, actually in time really became an obsession. Something I enjoyed doing began to become an idol. It began to take a place in my heart and in my life that it didn't belong. The way I like to say it is an identity battle got kicked off. This this kind of wrestling inside. Was my identity to be found in what I did or was it to be found in who I was in Christ? This, This tension only was further kind of exacerbated, if you will. It only, it only became greater in time. And as I did well in sports, uh, we moved to Florida where my dad was an AD. He was a head football coach, head basketball coach, an AD. And my dad could start to see this kind of wrestling going on. And so after one particular practice, my dad, he grabbed me after practice and he just said, son, I've coached against some of the greats. I've seen a lot of the greats. He said, but I want to challenge you with something. He said, I believe you have what it takes to play at the highest level. But he said, God has made you on purpose for his purposes. And your life is short. So simply spend your life 
doing whatever it is that God has made you to do. Sport is a game, and it may be a game God wants you to pursue for his glory, but it ain't about a sport. Now, as he was talking inside, I was kind of like, you know, kind of getting riled up, but you know, it's, it's dad, and he's AD, and he's coach, and you know, he's a big, strong dude, so I'm kind of just nodding my head. But then he said something at the end, and he said this. He said, son, just consider taking a year after high school before you go play in college, and just consider fully dedicating that year to discerning what God has for you to do. And on the outside, I was doing one of these head nods, but on the inside at that point, I was like, heck no, I'm going to be a light-skinned Deion Sanders. You know, Bo knows, you know, you know what I'm saying, playing all the, that's me for the, for the millennials, like Cam, Julio Jones, you know what I'm saying, like, that's my path. I, I want to be on Sundays, I want my name on stuff, right, I mean, I, I want, I'm going to be on ESPN, I mean, that's, that's my journey, that's my track. And so really what happened is the tension kind of crystallized. And, and, I, and I, I went home, and it was a Thursday night before a big game on Friday, and, and, and that tension you know, came to bed with me, and I, and I, and I was really just wrestling, right? Who, who's going to set tone? Who's going to set direction? Who's going to captain the ship? And just wrestling with God, it was about 2 a.m., and I got out of bed, and I finally stood up, and I just literally said to the room, God, this is my life. And this is what I want to do in my life. See, in a way, I wanted God to stay in his box. Sunday, right, but let me do my thing Monday. I wanted Jesus to be my savior, but I wanted to maintain lordship. I wanted to be in the driver's seat. Maybe said in a different way, instead of my posture being one of complete and total surrender, being willing to follow Jesus anywhere he wanted me to go, Privately, quietly, I wanted God to approve of my intended direction and follow me where I agreed going. Not too long after this, a storm had kicked up in the Gulf. You see, we had lived out in San Diego where my dad coached and picked up surfing in the Pacific, you know, those big old waves. So now we lived in Florida and we were in a Gulf town and the only surfable, rideable waves were when the hurricanes would form. And so my brother and I, every time there was a storm system, you know, that was out to sea, we would say, hey, it's surfing time, right? And so the waves were kicked up. There were, there were good waves. And what was happening is that the, the swells, as they were coming in, they were breaking on their breaking point where you ride waves. But with the storm surge, they were reforming. And then there was beach break. They would form again, and huge waves were crashing on the actual sand. And so in order to get out to the rideable waves, you've got to get through those, those big, that big beach break. And so... We decided we could do it, and, and we were racing to see who could get there first, and I got my clothes off, and I went running down the beach as fast as I could, and I was timing this big wave coming in, this big breaker, and as it was just about to hit the beach, I'd, I timed it, ran down, I jumped, I dove, and at the last minute, I decided to stick my hands behind my back. I don't know if I was pretending like I was a dolphin or what, but just a moment of insanity, right? And so I ran down, huge wave, dove, put my hands on my back, and I hit that wave like I had a hundred times before, only this time when I hit the water, a shock rushed through my body. Instinctively, I knew to lay still, but the momentum of the dive carried me through the water. I was laying face down. I was a little bit groggy. The best way I can describe it is like a sense of confusion kind of just rushed through my veins, and I was just kind of 
something happened or what's going on. The next wave rolled me over and I kind of came to, came to my senses and when I tried to get up, my body wouldn't work. Panic just ripped through my bones and my lungs began to cry out for breath. I could see the air, I could see the surface, but try as I might, I couldn't reach. Put my lips together and I sucked in water and I passed out. My brother saw me dive in, didn't think anything was wrong. He turned around to get the football. Some time passed. Eventually, he, he's like, where's my brother? So he went down to the place where, where I dove in, and he looked out in the water, and he couldn't see me. I was caught in what's called a longshore current, and my body was actually pulled under the water, and, and it was started to be taken down the beach. Not finding me, he thought, well, maybe he's playing a joke And so he left the place I dove in and began to search for me back in the bushes. Meanwhile, my parents had dropped us off, parked, made their way down. And by the time they hit the beach, my my brother is very concerned. My parents, my family, they split up and they begin to canvas the beach. They estimate about five to seven minutes passed from the time my mother and father looked down or from the time my brother saw me dive in to the time my, brother and my, my mother and father looked down the beach and saw a man. He was waist deep in the water. He was in some slack water. He was standing in front of a body and he lifted up the hand and he dropped it. I had drifted over 150 yards, a football field and a half down the beach. I had no heartbeat, no pulse, no body functions whatsoever. My mother, she hit the beach and began to scream, God, don't take my son. My father pulled me out of the water, laid me up on the sand, began to do what he knew of CPR. Others assisted him. My brother got my mother up. They ran to the nearest house, called 911. You know the stories, right? The EMT showed up, resuscitation, the defibrillators. I was loaded into a chopper. And I life flighted, and I was life flighted to Tampa General Hospital in Tampa, Florida. I don't remember much of the, the first week, but I remember choking, like gagging on something and kind of choking too. And when I came to, I was in a, in a foreign room, had no idea what was going on. There was tubes in my throat, tubes in my nose. And I remember looking around the room, and I could, I could see my father. He was sitting in the, the corner of the room. He hadn't shaved. He had bags under his eyes. He'd obviously been under duress for a while. And the very first words out of my mouth were these. How did I do in the game? Had football in the brain. My dad looked back, and he said, son, you didn't play. You broke your neck. I had shattered four vertebrae in my neck, and I was totally quadriplegic, hanging on to life. In that moment, through that journey, God taught me a very real truth. And that truth is what I shared with you and I opened up. Truly, on October 9th, 1996, I learned very personally that life at the end of the day is like a vapor, a mist that appears for a moment and vanishes away. You see, the psalmist talks about this concept in Psalm 39, 4 through 7. He says it this way. He says, 
Oh Lord, help me understand my mortality and the brevity of life. Let me realize how quickly my life will pass. Look, you make my days short-lived and my lifespan is nothing from your perspective. Surely all people, even those who seem secure, are nothing but vapor. Surely people go through life as mere ghosts. Surely they accumulate worthless wealth without knowing who eventually will haul it away. But now, O Lord, upon what am I relying? You are my only hope. See, the psalmist actually actually communicates one central point in six different ways in that passage. And And the point is the very thing that we're talking about that God taught me very personally. He says, Lord, help me understand that I am mortal, right? Benjamin Franklin was right. We're all guaranteed two things, death and taxes, right? (laughs) There is no fountain of youth. We are eternal beings, but our time here on earth is limited. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, we stand before God. And so the psalmist says, but God, I don't tend to live like that. I tend to live like it's all about the here and now. And he says, wake me up to my mortality. But then he goes on to say, don't just wake me up to the reality that my life will have an end. Help me see the measure of my days. Help me see that from heaven's perspective, it's like a handbreadth. It's short. It's like a vapor, a mist that appears for a moment and vanishes away. Now, I shared with you my story and how I learned that very personally. There is something, however, that goes without saying here that I'll state the obvious. I didn't die. (laughs) So so I'm here, right? God gave me a second shot, right? I'm alive. I have breath in my lungs. My vapor's not done. And so you may say, okay, I see you got it, and and I see the scripture, and I understand, maybe you understand, life is a vapor. But how does that understanding change anything by itself? And if you were to ask that question, it's a great question. Because the truth of the matter is, it doesn't change anything. Just simply coming to the place where we understand life's short doesn't in and of itself change our lives. But what it does do is it brings us to a crossroads. It brings us to a point of decision. And from that place, we are now in a new way able to decide. Will we waste our vapor or will we invest our vapor? See, I believe that God has a plan for you and wants you to execute that plan in your short life. See, when you and I got out of bed this morning, right, we placed our feet back on an earth filled with physically broken and spiritually starving people. People that Jesus died for and loves deeply. And as long as you and I have breath, we have an opportunity to meet needs and feed souls to the glory of Jesus Christ.
And, and I believe that's why God kept me here. And that is what keeps Vapor Ministries going. That's the reason that we actually exist as an entity, to literally go into some of the poorest places on planet Earth, third world environments filled with spiritual and physical hurt, and bring the glory of Jesus Christ and the power of God to bear in a way that changes lives physically and changes lives spiritually. My first time being exposed to a third world environment, I got to go into a place in East Africa. I was in my 20s, and it was a slum called Kawangwari Slum, a place that is like the picture you see on the screens. This particular place uh, was a place where extreme poverty is, is very prevalent. For those of you who, that don't know, extreme poverty is defined as places where people are surviving on less than $1.25 a day. So think about that with me. Let's personalize that. What would life look like if we were trying to survive on less than $1.25 a day? Welcome to the slums. As I spent time in the slum walking through a place filled with extreme poverty, I came across a scene like this. There were three boys that had climbed up on top of a trash dump. They had, they had sticks in their hands, and they were whittling down into the muck. And I remember walking with this African gentleman that was sharing with me the dynamics that were at play there. I remember one of these boys reaching down, about 10, 12 years old, and he picked up some mucks, picked up some, some, some scraps, and he began to eat it. And I just asked him as my heart was cracking, I asked him, what is going on? Why is this happening? And he explains to me that in this particular area, there was, in the greater city, there were over 150,000 street children that were, that were trying to survive. And coming back from that, like working through all that I saw, the connect, dots started to connect. God had kept me here for a reason. He had taught me and began to show me in his word his heart for the poor. He began to show me in his word his heart for the lost. It's the reason Jesus came, to seek and to save the lost. And he began to show me that he intended to use my life, my vapor, to meet specific need in the world. I remember coming back from that and really realizing that I was going to spend the rest of my life trying to forget what I saw or spend the rest of my life trying to do something about it. And wrestling in that tension, God showed us a way that we could meet need, alleviate poverty, and feed souls, make disciples in a meaningful, relevant way that would impact slums across this world. So we as an entity, we put our energy into going into these environments and bringing our, bringing our mission to bear in a way that changes lives and glorifies Christ. So I'm going to show you what that looks like on the ground. So we actually go in and we buy property or lease land, typically purchase property, and we build out a physical ministry center, a place of hope, a place of light in the middle of darkness. We tap into the sport of choice, whatever the local people enjoy participating in, and we leverage that for sharing the hope of Christ, advancing the gospel. 
because the centers are built in slums or positioned next to poverty-rich communities, we're able to provide real-time poverty-alleviating programs that save lives. And we're able to do this in a way that makes sense in the local context and actually leverages the talents that indigenous people bring to bear. So this may sound like a pie in the sky, a dream, but by God's grace, these dreams, these centers are literally coming into reality. This is an actual, li- uh, uh, an actual uh, live picture from the center, one of our centers there in Haiti, in Northeast Haiti, from that very water tower that I just showed you in the vision grand. So what does it look like lived out? What happens at the center? How do we go about carrying out that mission? I'll just take a little time and show you. So first, as I shared with you, we're passionate about obeying this call of Christ to feed souls, make disciples. And so we do that in a number of ways. But one of the main ways is by tapping into a, uh, the sport that people already love before we get there. That often, often happens to be uh, what we call soccer, what they call football. We, do, we have built a center with the highest elevation running track in an area, a poverty-stricken area where running is important. But whatever that sport is, we just want to tap into that which is relevant in culture for eternal purposes. So what's crazy is many of the folks in the surrounding area, many of the children, youth, and adults that, that we serve have this crazy passion for soccer But many of them have never played on a grass field, have never had the privilege of even touching and sometimes even seeing with their own eyes a real soccer ball. They'll make trash balls out of anything they can find in the slum. I actually have some back on the table that you can see made by kids in the slums. Many of the kids that come to our center have never owned a new piece of clothing, much less a jersey. The vapor jersey is the first new piece of clothing they've ever had. So you can imagine the magic that happens when these stars align and it comes together. On opening day of the first center we built in Africa, in in East Africa, we were hoping that around 500 would come to sign into leagues. We had over 2,000 come to sign in on opening day. And what happens is, is while children, youth, and adults are there doing what they love, they hear about the one that loves them through local indigenous disciples that we've trained and mentored and developed. And they are the change agents. They're advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're carrying forward the heart of God. And God is moving. Ladies and gentlemen, God is moving in some very dark places. Revival is breaking out in our world. One of our centers we built in an area that was considered unreached, meaning that particular town was considered uh, was 99.2% non-evangelical, voodoo-entrenched, witchcraft-entrenched. On two occasions, now staff have actually found children sacrificed after ceremonies. One boy, legs removed at his knees, arms removed at his elbows, decapitated and cast into the community well. One little girl found with her heart removed from her chest. Children sacrificed in today's day. I'm not talking about long time. I'm talking about in the 2000s to to gods that don't even exist. But the great and powerful God 
is reversing the curse. We've seen hundreds come to faith in Christ in this, in this town. New churches planted in the city as God is doing a greater work as we're getting to be a part of this, this, this picture. Some of the voodoo priests in the area's sons have come to faith in Christ and are denouncing the, idol, the idols that are in their area. And in the last, in, within the last year, one of the highest-ranking voodoo priests in the country who has had audience with the president of the country on multiple occasions at night to, to call in um, rain or to help famine cease. One of these guys has come to faith in Jesus Christ and is now a disciple advancing the gospel in his community. Yeah. This is our God. This is our great and awesome and amazing God that is still wanting to move in and through willing vessels to save souls and transform lives in powerful ways. We're unashamedly about advancing the gospel, feeding souls, but at Vapor, we're also about meeting needs, alleviating poverty in a way that brings glory to Christ and, and, and helps people and uh, be empowered to be brought from poverty, a hand up. And so at every center, you'll find master water projects where clean water is afforded to the community. You'll find agricultural development projects where we're able to, to feed and actually train people how to grow crops. We have an egg laying operation in Togo, a commercial gardening operation in Haiti. You'll, you'll find a wide variety of ways that we serve people's basic needs. We take the poorest kids that are in our leagues and we fund their formal education, all in the, in the, in the honor of Jesus Christ. So right now at Vapor, we have five what we call operating centers. And an operating center is just a center that the physical assets are built out. The, it's running and local indigenous people are overseeing the day in and day out management. And so at those five centers in Africa, in Haiti, we have over 350 staff that are serving and faithfully advancing the gospel and loving people. We're serving tens of thousands of people on a weekly basis now through our poverty alleviating efforts. And our latest enrollment numbers for our disciple-making initiatives are over 5,000 participants, five days a week being mentored. And then they're going out in communities and making gospel impressions and, and declaring God tens of thousands of times over. And this is all as our great God continues to show that he can do through anyone more than they can think to ask. This is what we're up to at Vapor Ministries, and all glory goes to Jesus Christ. So we've been listening to Micah McElveen talk about Vapor Ministries and the call that God has placed on his life. And I know as you listened that God uh, spoke to you and, and really is blessing your life. And we pray that you'll be able to, uh, to uh, reach out and find out more information about Vapor Ministries. You can find that out on the website, uh, vaporministries.org. And you can find out how you can be involved in, in what they are doing and even just praying for them, maybe supporting them financially or uh, in going on a mission trip to see some of their ministry centers that they have around the world. Uh, regardless, we pray that you will be on mission wherever you live and that God will bless you as you reach out and become a blessing to those around you.